On the night of February 11, 1873, Simeon Solomon is arrested. He's 32 years old, handsome with dark red curly hair and a short wispy beard, like Bob Dylan in the late 1960s or Pan, the mischievous god. He has the slight, sly smile of someone who's about to say something totally inappropriate. He is an artist, a former child prodigy who has exhibited his paintings at the highest level for almost half his life, starting when he was just 18. And now, at 7.10 p.m., on a cold night in the West End of London, Simeon Solomon is arrested in a public restroom, along with 60-year-old George Roberts, whose day job is shoveling manure. At the police station around the corner, they are stripped and examined by a doctor who probes their rectums and genitals. And then Solomon and Roberts are charged with attempting to commit a crime that until just a decade before had been punishable by death. An act listed on the books as the, quote, abominable crime of buggery. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the story of one of the first queer artists to be out, Come Hell or the Victorians, a story whose ending is still being written. I'm Tim Gehring. Okay, it's a long time ago. Let's say the year 1000 BCE, a thousand years before Jesus. And David, a shepherd boy in Israel, has just killed the giant Philistine warrior, Goliath. In fact, he's holding the giant's severed head, which is like the size of a Volkswagen, before King Saul, the king of Israel, to say, look, I just saved the Jewish people with my slingshot. Sorry about all the blood. Standing beside King Saul is his son, Jonathan, checking out this heroic shepherd boy. And right then and there, according to the book of Samuel and the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, if you like, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. They make a covenant, the Bible says. They become a thing, kissing and crying together at one point, until Jonathan dies in battle. And David, who eventually becomes King David, honors Jonathan's memory by seating Jonathan's son at his royal table, instead of honoring tradition and killing him along with the rest of Saul's family. Now, the Christian tradition says, eh, they were just good pals. While the Jewish tradition says, no, this was real love.
And so jump forward to 1852. And Simeon Solomon is 11 or 12 years old. The youngest of eight children in a prominent Jewish family in the East End of London. His father is one of the first Jews to be granted the freedom of the city after centuries of oppression. And Simeon is already starting art school. His sister Rebecca is an artist, and so is his brother Abraham. And now, here's Simeon, already starting art school himself, and incredibly precocious, and hitting puberty. He's well aware of the story of Jonathan and David. So, when he eventually goes on to study at the Royal Academy, at age 15, he latches onto this story as a way to explore this kind of love within the very acceptable bounds of the Bible. He draws Jonathan and David over and over. Now, to understand the world that Solomon is coming of age in, let's go back to 1533, when the Parliament of England passes the Buggery Act, which makes most forms of sex between men punishable by death. It stays on the books and fits and starts until 1828, when it's replaced by a law that still makes same-sex sex a death sentence. The last two men to be sentenced to death for sodomy in England are brought to the gallows in 1835, just five years before Simeon Solomon is born. They're in their early 30s, James Pratt and John Smith. And yet, they're so weak and heartbroken by the day of their hanging that the executioners have to carry them from their cell. As John's hands are being bound together, the easier to pray to God, James cries out, Oh God, this is horrible. This is indeed horrible. When Solomon finishes his art education at 18, this is the reality. There is no place in Victorian society for a man like him, except in his art. By the time Solomon is finished at the Royal Academy, he has befriended his heroes, the older, mostly male British artists who call themselves the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. These guys loathe the Impressionists, right? And almost all other popular art going back 200 years to the late Renaissance, when Raphael launched a thousand fleshy cupids into the clouds. They find it vapid, vaporous, really. What they like is the medieval era, or at least the idea of it, when painting was painting. You paint what you see, right, with clean lines and strong colors. None of this blurry or dot-to-dot stuff. When men were men, and apparently so were the women. In fact, here are some of the defining elements of the pre-Raphaelite painters. Number one, medieval themes. Literally, damsels in distress, knights in shining armor, King Arthur to the rescue. Number two, biblical themes. Never mind that they're not exactly consulting the Bible for advice on living. 
though they do know plenty of people in the biblical sense. Their models, other people's wives, each other's wives. Anyway, number three, women who look kind of like men. And so, here comes Solomon, who can really use this convention of androgyny in his art and the biblical setting to make it all respectable. The Near East, the the Orient as it's sometimes called, has long been a place where relatively respectable artists like Mozart or Shakespeare could play with eroticism, right? Because it was the other. Noam Siena, a Minnesota historian of Jewish and queer culture, who has studied and written about Simeon Solomon, says that for the young artist and others like him, the Orient becomes an escape into a time and place, mostly imagined, where gay is okay, where the love that dare not speak its name is spoken. Of course, Solomon is already considered the other in Victorian England, right, being Jewish. In one of the few photographs that exist of him, he's wearing a large white turban and a dark, heavily brocaded robe of some kind, really leaning into the theme. And in the late 1800s, images of Jewish life, families, and rabbis at the rituals are becoming hugely popular in England. The Jewish religion is becoming slightly more normalized in English life. Like, see, this is fine. These are a pious people. Look how long their beards are. In 1862, Solomon creates a series of drawings of Jewish life for an English magazine. One of them is of a Jewish wedding, the bride and groom under a chuppah, a kind of canopy, right, with the rabbi, and everything looks very sedate. Except at the edges of the picture are two men holding the poles of the chuppah and paying very little attention to the action under the tent. Two handsome, top-headed men about town, staring at each other across the ceremony, which will never be for them. In 1866, Solomon goes to Florence, Italy, to study the old masters. For some time now, he has already been traveling in his art, to the classical world, ancient Greece in particular. Like the Orient, another kind of imagined homeland for gay and lesbian identity, as Noam Siena puts it. Greece, in fact, was still part of the Ottoman Empire in the early 1800s, overlapping with the Orient. Solomon has painted the female poets Sappho and Arana embracing. He's drawn Socrates as an old man, going around with a young, male, very happily nude spirit. And now, here in Italy, he paints Love in Autumn, one of his masterworks, a portrait of a beautiful boy angel, naked except for the robe being blown off him by the wind, and, of course, his wings. The angel is out in the wilderness, far from the dirty, dangerous city, He appears like a lonely, vulnerable teenager, looking for love in all the wrong places. For many reviewers, this subtext is apparently going over their heads, 
They praise Solomon's work for its classic feel, quote, warmed by color and softened by romance. But others are starting to describe it as abnormal, lacking in moral intention. Solomon returns to Italy in 1869 and 1870. In Rome, he writes a long prose poem called A Vision of Love Revealed Through Sleep, which is a kind of allegorical journey of his soul from fear to revelation. With trembling optimism, he hints at a community of like-minded people ready to step out of the shadows. He uses all these tender poetic phrases from the Song of Solomon, his namesake book in the Bible, couching the theme of same-sex love in the language of moral authority. Phrases like, I sleep, but my heart waketh, and many waters cannot quench love. And this phrase, which is both the first and last line of Solomon's poem, until the day break and the shadows flee away. As Noam Siena, the historian, sees it, Solomon has been forced to live in fear, undercover, a dark night of the soul, if you will. But now, as his soul says to him at the end of the poem, love is the crown over us and the light about us. Through the thick veil of the darkness of the world, This is not seen or known of men, but only through the Spirit may it be made clear unto us. A new dawn may be coming, in other words, when his vision of love can shine openly. In 1870-71, after the poem comes out, some reviewers start seeing in Solomon's art what was always there, right under their heteronormative noses. One critic warned Solomon against insufficient manliness in his choice of subjects and detects a sentiment bordering on the crapulous, which doesn't sound good, whatever it means. The following year, a Scottish poet writing under a pseudonym goes after the pre-Raphaelites and their acolytes as their style is increasingly popular. The critic calls them public offenders and charges them with sickliness and effeminacy. He says they're threatening the very foundations of, quote, true English life. He singles out Solomon as one of those artists who, quote, lend actual genius to worthless subjects and thereby produce monsters. He says he despises the sort of person who, quote, goes into ecstasy over Mr. Solomon's pictures. Around this time, Solomon attends the trial of two men, Ernest Bolton and Frederick Park, known to their friends as Stella and Fanny. They had been arrested in London for transgressing against public decency, in which they did, quote, publicly pretend and hold themselves out to be women. They are cross-dressers, well-known in the theater district, 
and Solomon writes letters to his friends about seeing them at the trial, describing Bolton as not quite beautiful, but supremely pretty, a perfect figure, manner, and voice. Both men are acquitted, because the police have no evidence that they actually had sex with each other, or that wearing women's clothes is actually a crime. But the law is tightened as a result. So guys like Stella and Fanny, and really any out queer people, don't slip through. By 1873, when Solomon and the stablemen are arrested in the public bathroom, there is no escaping prosecution. The stableman is sentenced to 18 months hard labor in prison. Solomon avoids this fate. He's released to the care of his cousin with a 100-pound fine and a promise to behave himself. But Solomon does not behave himself. He's arrested again the following year in a public bathroom in Paris with a male prostitute named Henri. And this time, he serves three months in a Paris jail. Most of his friends and patrons desert him. Even the poet Algernon Charles Swinburne, who references masochistic sex acts in his writing, disavows his friend, writing that it's impossible for anyone to keep up his acquaintance and not be seen as an accomplice. About 20 years ago, several researchers, including Carolyn Conroy and Roberto Ferrari, began piecing together Solomon's life after his arrest, and they discovered that he wasn't quite the humiliated failure that early historians made him out to be. On the one hand, his life is not great. He moves out of the fashionable Chelsea and West End areas of London. He's poor and drinking more. Yet, he's still making art. He's still showing it, if not at the top galleries. In 1873, after his first arrest, he creates a rather self-confident self-portrait, now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, himself as an angel, with wings and a subtle halo, and unabashedly naked, the tie of his robe tossed in the bushes. He's staring at a crystal ball, a popular symbol in Victorian art, as though contemplating his future. His art is reproduced as photographic copies, and it makes the rounds of like-minded young men at places like Oxford student halls, where Oscar Wilde, in 1877, described Solomon as that strange genius. Less than 20 years later, in 1895, Oscar Wilde himself famously goes on trial, right? Because no one actually has to be caught in the act anymore, just suspected of it. And so, on trial for gross indecency, Wilde makes a mockery of Victorian prudishness. Have you ever adored a young man madly? Wilde is asked. No, not madly, Wilde responds. I prefer love. That is a higher form. Did you ever have the feeling, Wilde is asked, that you wanted a young man all to yourself? No, he responds. I should consider it an intense nuisance 
an intense bore. Finally, he's asked, What is the love that dare not speak its name? And Wilde replies that it's like the love between David and Jonathan. It's the noblest form of affection, he says. There is nothing unnatural about it. In 1884, Solomon enters the workhouse. He has become indigent to the point of illegality, yet he also claims to like the workhouse because of its, quote, central location in London. Solomon lives until August 1905, when he dies in the dining room of the workhouse after 20 years of being in and out of the place. He's outlasted the Victorians, But he hasn't outlasted the oppressive laws or the society that passed them. In the obituaries written about him, he's described as one of the most miserably tragic stories in the whole chronicles of art. He could have been great, it said. He could have been somebody. Had he been, quote, of normal temperament and reasonable habits. Solomon is forgotten until, at the height of the AIDS crisis in England, he starts to resurface. In 1987, a British theater artist named Neil Bartlett creates a one-man show about Solomon, with the same title as his poem, A Vision of Love Revealed in Sleep. Bartlett likes the early work, the moody, androgynous boys, but he really likes the later work, the images Solomon made after he'd become bald and stooped and drunk, after his supposed fall from grace. Solomon couldn't always afford canvas and oil paints anymore, so he drew on cardboard with chalk and charcoal. As Bartlett notes, the lines were less sharp than they used to be. The elaborate backdrops were mostly gone. He often just drew faces, two faces gazing at each other, or a single visage gazing at himself. Over and over again he drew them, as though he were summoning their dreams. When Bartlett gets on stage, he's naked except for a robe and his mustache. I had this dream, he says, and he describes seeing these young men, former lovers perhaps, beaten down in the street, bleeding on the pavement. He cries out to the spirit, showing him these visions. I don't think you can ask us to wait to be happy. Oh, that the day would break and the shadows flee away. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial, 
I'm Tim Gehring. A big thank you to Noam Sienna, Dr. Noam Sienna now, who talked to me about Simeon Solomon and wrote about him in his book, A Rainbow Thread, an Anthology of Queer Jewish Texts from the First Century to 1969. New episodes are coming out every month. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you cast your pods. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.